Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Rob Fitzpatrick. He's the author of The Mom Test. So Rob, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So you've done a lot of different things in the entrepreneurial, sort of in the author space as well. But how I ran across you was your wonderful book, The Mom Test. So can you give us a little sort of summary for people that don't know of of the book? The gist is something that every entrepreneur has felt. Where you go, you ask for feedback, you ask customers what they want, you try to do your market research. They get so excited. They say, yeah, that's incredible. What a great idea. This is going to take over the world. I can't believe it doesn't exist yet. You know, you take that, you think it's positive feedback. You think it's confirmation that they want to buy it, use it. You think it's representative of their intention to purchase. So you go, you build it, you you go out on a limb, you take the financial risk, you invest the time and you launch and they go, oh, I don't really need it actually. It's like, come on, you're killing me here. And this happens with startups and it happens with existing businesses, with products, with services. And what I realized, this is what killed my first business. We had great investors. We were doing, you know, we, we, we were on TV. We were all, all the trappings of success, right? And we were going through all the motions that we'd read about in the startup books. And it felt like, I was like, man, my customers were lying to me. That was so mean-spirited. But what I realized is actually, it's not their responsibility to tell the truth. It's the entrepreneur's responsibility to frame the conversation and to ask the questions such that the truth comes out comfortably and naturally without expecting anyone else to somehow be able to predict the future or to overcome all these. It's a difficult conversation. Someone goes, hey, I'm starting a business. I'm so excited. I'm going to quit my job. What do you think? You know, so basically the book, The Mom Test is, is uh, like the idea is your mom is the most supportive person. She loves everything you do. So if you can ask a question so good that even your mom's positive biases don't come through. And the main way you do that is just by instead of asking about the idea, you ask about their life. You don't go, what do you think about my idea? You go, hey, weird question. How are you already dealing with this? Why are you doing it that way? What else have you tried? Why haven't you already solved this problem? And so you just leave your idea off the table and instead you dig into their life. And in that way, they don't realize it's about your thing. Or even if they do, they're still just telling you their story. And so people are much more honest. And then you still need to make your entrepreneurial leap. You need to figure out like, okay, based on the way their life is, what's the right product? What's the right service? There's still risk. You're not building a product by committee. You're not removing all the risk, but at least this gives you accurate customer understanding. It's a solid foundation from which to make your own decisions. Yeah, yeah. So you gave a few examples of what good questions are. You touched on it a little bit, but what are some really classic bad questions? Do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah, I, I made this. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Others, stuff that's a little bit more subtle is, would you ever use something like this? Or do you think you would ever pay for a product that solved this problem? And the reason those are bad is just because people are, are very inaccurate when predicting their future behavior. 
And when, when you ask them a question like that, what they're doing is they're imagining the benefits without imagining the costs of adopting a new solution. So there's always switching costs. There's always a workflow inertia if you're selling to businesses. There's always training costs. There's software. There's all these things. And then there's also these other questions, like maybe they want to be the 10th customer, but do they really want to be the first customer? Do they care so much that they're going to take that career risk before you're proven? And so when you ask a question, what do you think of this? Or would you ever use it? The answer is always like, it's amazing. And of course I would. Because <laughs> you're giving them the good without the bad, right? And so part of the trick there. Like ideally, you split the conversation into two stages. This can happen in one meeting, but it's two different stages of the conversation where the first stage is just understanding them. And then when you, if you're like, okay, I think they're a good customer, I think they care, you switch into what's a traditional demo or pitch or, or sales conversation. But if you're still pre-product, you're not in a position usually to actually sell the full product. So what you try to do is you try to shift them into a purchasing mindset by asking for some sort of commitment. When you're selling to businesses, this can be time, reputation, money, or secrets about their buying process. So things like who are the other stakeholders? What are the budgets? What are the timelines? Who else would need to sign off on this? These are not rhetorical tricks. These are not negotiation tactics. If someone gets uncomfortable, that is your answer. And the answer is that they do not care. You can probably force them to give you something, but it's so difficult for a business to be the first customer of a new startup or of a new product, that unless what you're trying to do is you're not trying to convince them to care, you're trying to identify the people who do care because that's what you really need for your first few customers, uh, at least in my experience. And after you've got that first cluster and you've proven it and you've got the case studies and you're a little bit more credible, then you can take that, bake that into your sales or marketing material and start you know, beginning your journey into the, the mainstream. But early on, you know, it's just scanning for that, that care. And at a certain point during the conversation, when you do this, like, Nine out of 10 people, they're like, ooh, you're a bit early stage for us. Or they, they make these polite excuses. Oh, I'll tell you what, uh, I can't really schedule the next meeting right now, but uh, let's send an email and we'll talk about it. And you go, okay, fine. Keep them on the list, loop back to them. It may just not be the right time for them, right? But occasionally you bump into someone who goes, oh my gosh, we've been hiring an agency to do this. We've been spending a fortune. I've been trying to do it myself. I hired five interns. You know, we're, and you're like, wow, you're spending a ton of effort on this. And, or they're like, I've been reading all these blog posts and books. I've been trying to learn how to do it. And it feels like you're not selling to them. It feels like they've come around to your side of the table. And, and suddenly they're helping you to understand and to sell to the rest of the organization. And that's where it really opens up. You don't need this if you're selling to consumers, but if you're selling something innovative to, to businesses, it's uh, you know it's pretty important to find that person. And you do it by scanning for them, not by trying to strong arm and convince people who don't care, right? Yeah, for sure. Now, I heard you say once that one of the, the pitfalls of reading your book is people go off and ask a whole bunch of nebulous questions. How do you keep that directed without tipping people off or biasing them? There's a bit of a volleyball metaphor here because so people read the mom test. I, I talk about, you know, you don't want to bias them. You don't want to lead them to give you a compliment. I talk about bad data as like compliments, opinions, and hypotheticals. You know, I love it. I think you should do this and we will definitely use it. It's like, that's a compliment, an opinion, and a hypothetical. So that's bad data. Whereas good data is either facts about their life or it's commitments. 
It's explanations of their previous behavior, what they're already doing and why. That's like good data or commitments. So the way you keep them on track, there's a volleyball metaphor. So in volleyball, the ball comes over the net and whatever, just keeps the ball off the ground. But then the, the next two that someone lifts it with like a gentle hit that's not meant to score a point, it's called a set. It's not meant to score a point. It's not even meant to go over the net. It just moves the ball into position for the spike, for the winning point. Um, and often with your questions, it's not that every question needs to win a point. It's not that every question needs to give you perfect data. Sometimes you need to nudge the conversation like a set back into the place that you care about. If you care about some industry, some technology, some problem, it's no help to go in and be like, tell me everything about your life. Because a very low percentage of that conversation is going to be useful to you. However, if you say, like, people know what you're doing, right? They, they know you're talking to them for a reason. There, there's ways you used to be able to set up incognito conversations in the real world, but that's much harder now that everything's remote. Some people are still kind of doing it by setting up like fake podcasts or research papers. I mean, they're real podcasts, but the purpose it's of them is to like, is to run a bunch of interview conversations with the customers they want to get in touch with. But now you have to kind of tell people what you're doing. And so the way I set that up is I say like, hey, like I, I, I'm, I'm researching a new business in the, in the publishing space. We're trying to figure out a more author-friendly model for publishing and drop the cost structures. So that's like the vision, but not the product. And then I go, but I'm having a really hard time understanding how publishing businesses run their operations and why everything is so expensive. You spent 15, so that's like my admission of weakness. And also at the same time, by admitting weakness, you give the other person an opportunity to help you, which people love to do. People love to help an entrepreneur. And then you go, you've been in this industry for 15 years. You've seen it through and through. I don't have anything to sell you. We're working on a product, but we're still early stage. I, I'm just, it would help me out so much if you were willing to share your experiences and your stories and, and, and your insights with me. Not everyone says yes to that, but it boosts your conversion rate from like 5% to like 50%. It's pretty substantial, especially if you go through a warm contact. And once you're in that conversation, people don't like having conversations if they don't know the script. So if you go, can we just grab a coffee and talk? People get very nervous. Like, what is this? Are you selling me something? Are you asking for money? Is this a date? Like, I don't know what's happening right now. When they're nervous like that, they're defensive. And so you're not getting pure information, right? Because they're second guessing everything they tell you and they're trying to figure out how it could be used against them in the future. Whereas when you've set up a clear context about this is the stage I'm at, this is what I'm struggling with, and this is why you in particular can help me, it gives them a script and they're like, oh, I get what this is. I'm helping an entrepreneur in this specific way, or I'm helping a product creator or a business person or a friend of a friend or whoever it is. And they get that. And, and so then you can, you can nudge the conversation quite forcefully back onto the topics you care about because you go, wait, 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 you were saying something about annual budgets that was super interesting to me. Like, would you mind telling me more about how you blank? Or, or like you were telling me something about insurance or like whatever it is, you can jump the conversation around. You, you can be like, hey, super sorry to interrupt. I was talking to someone else in this industry and they mentioned something super weird, blah, blah, blah. What's your take on it? And as long as you keep it focused on them, so it's like what they're already doing and why, what happened in the past, as opposed to what do you think of my great idea that's hypothetical in the future? You can you can you can set the ball right where you want it, right? You can keep the conversation going. 
So it's not like everything needs to be open-ended. It's just, you can't be like, isn't my idea amazing? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now for you, does the dynamic change if you're like a new, like pre, pre-product versus more of an established company that's sort of adding to their pipeline or something? Like it, what are the considerations there? I have a lot more experience in the startup context, but occasionally I've tucked the process in to, to, to larger companies. The challenge and the benefit, so if you're a larger company, you already have usually like a sales or customer support pipeline that's happening. So you're already in contact with all the people you want to be in contact with. And what you can do is try to carve out a few minutes of open space at either the beginning or the end of those existing conversations. And you can bring someone from the new product team with you or the new business line with you. It's not weird to bring two people to a meeting, even online. It's weird to bring five people to a meeting, right? That gets a bit intimidating. But if it's you and someone else, it's like totally fine. You can set that up in different ways. You can do it incognito. You can be explicit and do it as like, hey, this is this person's exploring a new business line. Just the same, the same framing I mentioned a minute ago, you know. We're not selling anything to you here, but you know, could you take two minutes and help us out real quick? Depending on your relationship with the customers and how it works, you can do it that way. You can also, in big companies, in, in many cases, depending on the size, like I was doing some stuff with Hewlett Packard, and they're in a case where everyone wants to talk to them to build the relationship. And, and so when they're exploring, uh, in this case, they were really trying to understand new use cases for like industrial 3D printing. And they basically just opened their calendars to small and mid-sized businesses who were doing manufacturing, like physical manufacturing. And so from the small and mid-sized businesses perspective, it was this incredible opportunity to get in the door and develop a relationship with a much larger company than themselves. And they hoped that they might become a supplier or something. And for HP, they were getting the the learning and the exposure to the, the, the use case. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs basically trying to smash through a brick wall with their heads, like just doing things the hard way. You don't need to be cold messaging people on LinkedIn. Almost everyone has some kind of asset or reputation or network or, and even if you don't, you can get a bit clever about what's the structure. Can I create a structure where it, it, it's value add on both sides and the person's going to be happy to be there? Like a podcast, right? People hate being interviewed for an hour, but they love being podcast interviewed for an hour. It's, it's like the same experience, right? They're doing the exact same thing. You've just positioned it differently because they're like, oh, I'm not doing a favor to one person. I'm an expert. And also I'm going to get marketing or exposure or credit. It's the exact same conversation, right? And often they're not going to be like, wait, what's your audience? What is the average listens? They're just going to be like, oh yeah, podcast. Awesome. Let's go. There's a little bit of this. I call it context control or, or balancing the value equation. It's like, how do I make sure that both people want to have this conversation? Because if they don't, if you trick them into the conversation, they're, they're going to fairly quickly notice what's happening. And while if you're doing like a hard sell and you have product market fit and you have a mature product, you might be able to trick your way through that. If you're in the early stages and you're trying to explore a new business line, the door just slams right down on that. There's no way you get the, the friendly, open conversation that you need. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when you are asking these questions, how much of, you know, in your opinion, are standard kind of thought out questions beforehand? How much of it is, you know, exploring depending on the where the conversation goes? I start with my business risks. So whether you use a 
business model canvas, a plan, like big boardroom strategy conversations. I, I try to pull out like what are the things that are highest risk, most likely to kill us, most uncertain. And then I, I look through them and and some of those you're going to be able to answer through conversations or either learning conversations or sales and pitch conversations. Some you'll need like laboratory experiments and R&D, some you'll need, you can do with like prototypes, smoke tests, throwaway experiments. Some you can do with desk research, market research, talking to experts. And then there's another category where there's just no way to test it. And you're just going to have to hard commit to it for like 10 years. It's kind of an all-in situation. A lot of international expansions are like this. You can't really test an international expansion. You just have to, you're like, we're doing it right? And, and it's a one-way decision and you commit hard and you try to make it work, but you can't like dip your toe in and be like, Ooh, is it, is it going to work? The same is true of something like if you thought that having an industry newsletter or would be important for your business, you can't dip your toe into building a newsletter. You just have to be like, all right, let's give it five years and you execute. So I start with the risks and then I try to figure out like of these major risks, which are the ones that are solvable quickly? What's the low hanging fruit? And then I'm, I'm sort of like, okay, some of those are, are solvable by talking to industry experts. Some are solvable by talking to customers, some by talking to partners, some by talking to investors. And then I try to line up those conversations. And for each of them, I, I typically, I found that about three major I don't think of them as questions. I think of them as conversation topics. So it might be budgets, legality, and why they haven't already used the competitor might be my three like topics that I'm going to explore, or it might be something, something. And like, why are they even talking to me in the first place? Like, what, how are we different from the, the big gorilla that, you know, has, that everyone else uses? Like, why are they even bothering to have this conversation or why are they reaching out to smaller companies? So I'll, I'll go in with three topics and those topics will shift over time. So as you answer questions, you're not trying to run the same checklist with every customer, right? You're trying to, because it's a new business. This isn't a sales playbook. This is a uh, a quest of learning. You're, you're trying to de-risk the business thesis of a new product line or business line. And, and so as you convincingly answer questions, you sort of move past them to the next question. And they tend to start out very big and open-ended, like, does this even matter? Do you care? How much money is it worth? What are you currently doing? And over time, they get very specific, you know, like what's the required performance, blah, blah, blah. So you move through those. And I, the reason I like the three topics instead of a, a big list of specific questions is because when you're doing something new, a lot of the answers you hear are gonna be weird and surprising. <laughs> and if you've got a list of like 20 questions, you move on to the next question, but you never really understood where that weird answer came from. And when something weird happens, I think of it like a metal detector going beep, beep, beep. The beep is not the data, but the beep tells you that there's something weird buried. And so when you hear a weird answer or something unexpected, you're not done. You now know that you need to dig underneath that answer to try to figure out what's like what's buried there that led to such a weird signal on the surface. And so I like that. I, I found that's about the right space. And usually my conversations for learning last 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. Work through three three things, have a nice chat, try to help them back in, in, in return. Sometimes you really click with someone and you know you can spend hours. They're just having a blast. It's the best part of their day. 
but I, I tend to move through it pretty quickly. And if we get into pitch stage where I'm doing a pitch or a demo, then I, I've planned my commitment that I'm going to ask for in advance. It's like, if this conversation goes really well with this customer, and if they want the pitch, and if they respond well to the pitch, then the commitment I will ask for is whatever to meet with the rest of their technical team or their lawyers to talk through whether the implementation details are practical. And it's like, okay, that's a non-financial commitment, but it's still something they're not going to give me lightly. So it, it demonstrates their intent to purchase. That's the way I do it. Then I take really good notes. And then afterwards I, I review the notes and I try to kind of cross off or eliminate the stuff that was either bad data or a reaction to a bad question. So that I'm left with like the, the the good stuff, right? Which, you know, maybe it's half of it. And then I then I try to share that raw data with my team. So I'm not just sharing a decision. It's not like we should do this because then you're just a dictator by default. It's like, hey, you know, I had these conversations and this is what happened. And, you know, and, and you try to load the raw data as much as possible. There's a bunch of software that helps with this now. But, you know, my team at the moment is small. So we just do it on our, our weekly stand-up meeting. Yeah, you know, so you, you brought up something really interesting, which is, you know, when you when you find something weird, that's the metal detector going off and, you know, you need to dig further to see what's there. Now, can you give me a few examples of that you can talk about where the metal detector went off and what was it and what did you learn from it? Uh, talking to universities, we we talked about, we understood that we were building software for uh, tech transfer. So basically spinning uh, university student research from the, the master students, PhD students and professors, spinning that out into separate businesses and intellectual property so it can be commercialized. And we found out that the software we were building would, would save them like four jobs. Like there were like four full-time people doing this like brute force with photocopies and Excel spreadsheets. And so in our head, we're like, oh, that's uh, you know, like fully loaded salaries. That's like a 400 grand a year expense. Right. And when we were talking to them about it, they're like, yeah, but it wouldn't actually save us any money. And that was a super weird thing to hear because from my perspective of talking to businesses, it's like, well, that's staff that can be reallocated to a different department, or that's contractors or agencies that can be dropped. That's like direct savings. But for a university, this is in Britain, so it's like a government university, they are not allowed to fire people or change their jobs. And so because it was full-time staff doing those things, that was essentially a non-malleable cost. And so for them, we weren't actually saving them 390 grand, we were costing them 10 grand, right? And that was a very weird moment where just, it was a small comment. It was like, well, it wouldn't actually save us anything. And I was like, wait, 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 what do you mean? And we went down this whole rabbit hole of public university budget constraints and, and staffing and all of that stuff. And once I understood that, it got a lot easier to navigate because I was like, oh, there's like a time of year when the budget's approved and I need to be talking to the people pitching budgets and we add it on and it's this thing. And so it's actually a very cyclical sales process for that business with the universities. That was one example. Other things is like, what's another good example? It's like, to me, one of the weirdest things is just why people are talking to me in the first place. Like right now, this is more consumers, but we're building this stuff for authors to, it's like software to help them with beta reading. And the interesting question to me is always why they aren't just using Google Docs. Because we basically let them share their manuscript and get back comments. And we, we've built some nice stuff. They get we think better feedback, but there's a ton of stuff Google Doc does that, that we don't. Like 
ours doesn't work on mobile yet. Yeah, and all this stuff will happen, but it, right now it doesn't. It doesn't work on mobile. You can't reply to other comments. There's no privacy or permissions. The commenters are anonymous. There, there's a million features missing. And I'm always fascinated by like, why are you willing to give up all of those features for what we do have? And so far, two or three dozen authors have used it to beta read and, and launch their books. And that's fascinating to me because it, it reveals a value proposition and a job to be done that they're not getting from Google Docs, despite Google Docs being better in almost every measurable way. By figuring out what that piece is, right, that's going to inform our marketing language. That's going to inform the way we describe ourselves, the way we promote ourselves. That's going to inform which features we double down on and which Google Docs features we, we don't actually need to emulate. So, you know, those, those are two, two little examples. Yeah. What's your, what's your best working theory on why people are coming to you? <laughs> so basically, the, the, it's such a silly change. But uh, <laughs> so Google Docs, like, or most places, the, the comments are blank, right? It's like, leave a comment. Um, what we've done is, is we've primed it with four reactions, which is, I love this. This is useful. This is slow. And this is confusing. And so they can just press the button. And by seeing it there, so two things, like they don't actually have to type anything. So that makes it way easier. They can just highlight and be like, seems slow. So that increases the number of comments by about a thousand percent by about 10 X, because a lot of people don't know what to say. And actually what they want to say is like, it feels a bit slow, but when they're looking at a blank comment field, they don't know how to say that. And seeing the, seeing the button makes them feel like that's what the author wants and that's allowed. A uh, part of it is the positioning. So like the site is called help this book. And it's very much like the whole framing of the site is like, this is a book in progress. You are here to help this author. This is not a finished thing. Like you are contributing and that's quite different. Like they feel like their feedback is going to be, be valued. And, and the other thing is that authors care about when, when you send it out for open feedback, you get a lot of typos. You get a lot of like shallow feedback, basically copy editing. It's like, oh, this is a typo. The sentence is confusing. But what they want is about whether the underlying message is clear. And we actually don't have a button for typos. We don't have a button for grammar. And so they really like it. It really increases the signal to noise ratio. It nudges readers toward leaving a type of feedback that is useful for authors. And it turns out for those things, like more feedback and more useful feedback, they're willing to sacrifice almost everything else. Now it just feels like execution. We're a small team, so we're annoyingly slow on the technical progress. <laughs> it sounds like expectation management is part of that. But um, now that you got me thinking, would an average company benefit from adding these prompts? Like, you know, tell us we we suck at this or so, some sort of prompts on the website. Like, how, would that sort of bring bring the the right kind of information in? I don't know. It's there's a positioning problem and there's also a selection bias. So when you add those sorts of prompts, like a lot of people have these little chat boxes and give us feedback and fill out the survey. And all of those have a very strange selection bias where you get the people who are either like really happy or really pissed off or just weird people who have nothing better to do than like leave feedback for no reason. You definitely get some, it's not zero, but there, there's a lot of conflicting factors. And so it, it's something that I think you need to be a little bit thoughtful about. Like just, just putting the buttons there isn't necessarily going to give you good feedback, but any door you can open to get more customer feedback and customer in, input is, is a win. 
There's a, a company I advise called uh, uh, Resin, Resin.io. They build, it's kind of like infrastructure for edge and internet of things. So like for quick software development on hardware devices, especially fleets of internet connected uh, hardware devices. And they were a very developer-led company. When I was talking to them, they were like 49 developers and like one business person, you know? And, and they're an enterprise sales business, but they were very software first. And their whole sales process was around um, the core of their tech is open source. And they built like their customer learning and their sales around responding to uh, support tickets and customer requests on their open source repo. And they built this company culture where every developer did their own support. They had a reverse leaderboard. So if you'd done the least support that week, you had to do support full-time until you weren't at the bottom of the leaderboard. And then you could get back to your code. So they'd often be like, oh, I got 10 minutes before lunch. Let me just jump on a quick customer call. And that's an amazing thing to see a, a room full of developers doing. And they had a couple just extra questions. You can do this with sales processes also. So instead of just saying, okay, what's your problem? How can I fix it? They said like, hey, what were you trying to do when this came up? Like, what are you doing now since we don't have this feature? Like, how often would you be using this? And they just added a little bit of a customer development script to the beginning or end of each technical support conversation. And you can also do that with sales. The best salespeople already do this. Like sales is more listening and understanding than it is hard pitching. And so if you get a good salesperson, the, the early portion of the conversation, they're like a learning superpower. And the problem that bigger organizations have, it's not that the salespeople aren't getting the learning, it's that they aren't then sharing it with the rest of the organization. So you've got silos between departments and so you've got like learning coming from the marketing and advertising team, which isn't going to sales. You've got learning from sales, which isn't going to strategy. You've got learning from strategy and exec, which isn't going anywhere. And like, what's the point of the learning if it's not being spread to all the other brains that you're working with, right? So how do you, how do you uh, sort of uh, rectify that? Do you just post the information? Do you, do you, you huddle in a group every once in a while? Do you have people crossing over on different meetings? How have you seen it successfully uh, employed as a company-wide or from a leadership level? I've probably only seen it up to up to about 50 people on the team. Beyond that, it gets a bit uh, above, my, uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> so up to about 50, you can do things like you're, you're often still having the all hands or the stand-up. A, a company I love, uh, Songkick, they were a, a, a consumer app. They're now the ones, if you are on Spotify, uh, it's like, hey, this band is coming to your town and doing a concert. Songkick was the startup that kind of built that live music, whatever thing. And they had an awesome process where on Fridays, they would bring in a bunch of their most passionate users. They would basically throw a concert in their office every Friday, and they would invite their most active local users to like, hey, free concert, this band you love, come on into our office. And then during that time, they would say, it's just mingling. It was, uh, you know, they, they didn't have a big agenda, but they wanted everyone on the team to be in contact with, with active users. And during that, throughout it, they would basically be pulling aside people and they'd say, hey, no pressure at all. If you want to just keep drinking beer and listening to music, that's cool. But we got a new version of the app. Like, you know, do you want to spend 20 minutes and, and look at it with us? And they had a little permanent user testing room set up and people were always like, yeah, I'd love to see the new version. And so they'd go in, they'd do a little user test they do those on Friday. And then on Monday morning, the kind of uh, user experience and, and that, that like customer conversation team, they'd compile what they learned from that afternoon. So they'd be working while everyone else was partying. 
And at the all hands, they boil it down into a little like five minute or 10 minute kind of video reel of customer reactions and comments and quotes, and they'd replay the conversations. And that was it. So the way they dealt with it, and, and you can look on their growth curve, it was like decent growth. And then they, they started doing this and they made some other operational changes. And it was like to the moon because they were running into all these problems where it's like the team was big enough that everyone was having to make these little decisions. Oh, what text do we put on that button or that page? Like, how do we describe this feature? Do we need, do we even need this feature? And so they exposed everyone to some amount of just organic osmosis, you know, exposure to the customers. And then they also had the structured process and that's how they distributed it. There's also tools like um, Grain and there's a bunch now that, that are basically really smart video transcripts that you can either send it your videos after the fact, if you're doing your, your sales or your customer learning on, on Zoom, uh, and some of them even will listen live. And uh, Green, for example, it gives you a little notepad. And so you're putting in emoticons and notes, and it's timestamping your Zoom call as you go. Wow. Uh, and then at the end, it just pulls out, like it, it does the AI-generated transcript, and then it pulls out the 30 seconds around each of your notes. And you can go onto the transcript and be like, actually, I need these two minutes, or actually, it's just these 10 seconds. Um, and you select it. And, and then from there, it's just like, send these clips to my team Slack or to my team wherever. Uh, and because what people are not going to do is watch hours and hours of, of customer interviews that, that just no one's going to do that. So part of your task is the, if you're the person doing the research, is, is how do I really improve the signal to noise? How do I get rid of the garbage and the fluff, which is inherent in any conversation and give them like five dense minutes of firsthand learning so that they can, they can see it. And also people don't need to see everything. What you need is a representative sample. You don't need every single data piece. So if I can get someone on my team to come to every like a conversation a week, I'm like, fine, good enough. <laughs> like they're at least getting some exposure, right? They know I'm not just being a crazy person. They see it in the customer's eyes. <laughs> and then if they've got that little bit of firsthand exposure, they're going to take all of the rest of the data more seriously because they're like, oh yeah, people are really mad about this. Hey Rob, uh, your, your wealth of information. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to cover? Not really. I mean, if... Um, my kind of interest right now is like I did the the Kestev stuff, and then I'm also getting super into both books as products and also community. I think community is such a superpower right now, building a customer community and helping your customers to succeed. It's like whatever you're selling to your customers, if you help them succeed with it, they're going to become better customers and more evangelical customers, right? Because they they got the results they wanted. Whatever industry this applies. And I think community is such a, you can do some of it with education, with customer success, but building a customer community and structuring it around that outcome of success. So cool to me right now. So I'm writing a ton of stuff about that. I'm running my own little community for authors and all that stuff's at robfits.com, R-O-B-F-I-T-Z. So, uh, you know, if anyone wants to uh, keep an eye on me, make sure I don't get into too much trouble. Robfits.com is the place to do it. And uh, yeah, that's it, man. I, I, but community is it's such a blast because I am so bad at it and I'm having so much fun just learning. I feel like being thrown back into trying to learn sales as an introvert. And I'm like, man, I am bad at this, but uh, it, it feels important. And I'm excited to be making every little, you know, centimeter of progress. It's always fun to learn something, Rob. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's been my absolute pleasure. And I, I, uh, I wish everyone the absolute best. If anything, I said, if you try it and it turns out not to work, I'm easy to find on the internet. So, so let me know and uh, we'll, we'll try to work through it. 
Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>